Thank you, Ronnie. I love the full band of worship. It just, just moves me. There's sometimes, you know, you just have, there's whatever your mood you're in or whatever, sometimes they just hit you right where they're, you're, you're living. And um, this was one of those times. So thank you for choosing the right songs, Kendra. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, you told us um, to ask the Father to send out workers to bring in the harvest. And so we want to do that this morning. Father, we ask that you ignite a renewed passion for the gospel in our lives and a search and a sense of urgency in our church that we may clearly preach the way of salvation so that many might see and believe and put their trust in you. Father, we also ask that you mobilize us as a missionary movement right here in the Columbia Gorge and that you broaden our vision uh, like with the scene out of Revelation where every tribe and language is represented around your throne. Father, we ask for the Holy Spirit to revive us, to come once more as you, just as you came in the, that first prayer meeting in Jerusalem that we might preach with our lives and with our words and with our love, that we will preach your hope and the life in the resurrected Jesus. I'm going to ask the congregation now just take a moment of silence. And in your mind's eye, I'm going to ask you to hold people up before the throne. People who need to know the love and the hope and the saving grace of Jesus Christ, the great shepherd. So let's just take a few minutes in silence and hold those people before God. Father, we do thank you that you love the world so much that you sent your only son. And I'm asking this morning, Father, that you help us to love the world with the same extraordinary, generous love that you have. We thank you, Jesus, that you gave everything up, everything in heaven up, to lower yourself down to us and even die for us. And Father, we ask that you give us the courage to give our lives for others. We thank you for the Holy Spirit. We thank you for giving those first disciples the courage and power, and we think and we trust that you will give us the same courage and the power. Fill us today with the boldness that we may carry Jesus to the people who need him this week. In his name we pray. Amen. We are back and uh, continuing our, the uh, coming to the end of our little ser- series before we start kind of in the more of the Advent season, a space for grace about the church. Uh, last week we had a family gathering, and this week we are talking about the family gathering this, this week. Um, during the height of the pandemic, we did, uh, like most churches did, we did, canceled our in-person, in-person gathering and went to, um, I want to lower this, and went to live streaming. And most might people think, that, uh, gee, that must have been a relief for, for me and for Kendra and the worship team. That was, must have been a lot better. And I, and I admit, I get nervous every single Sunday. And uh, it's, a, it's frightening every Sunday uh, for an introvert to come up and do this. But, um, but th- that's, I wouldn't rather do anything else. 
And so people think, oh, it must have been a lot easier during the, during the pandemic to stay at home and all this. And it was incredibly, immensely stressful uh, to, um, to, to carry this off. We have to um, record all the sermon, the, the um, prayers, the scripture reading, the welcome, all that kind of stuff. Uh, and, it, and when you're looking just in front of a camera, you feel like you're just talking to nobody. You're just talking to the air, right? You know, you're just kind of talking out there. And uh, that, was, that alone was stressful. And every time I, mu- I stumbled over words or tripped over a phrase or, or forgot or something, I feel like I'd have to start all over again because it has to be perfect. It's in front of the camera. It's going out on TV, you know. And you just feel like it had to be, had to be perfect. And, uh, and then you, you're stressed about, okay, what's the church going to look like after this is over? You know, is Shepherd of the Valley going to survive? Uh, are we going to still have people meeting together? And all that stuff was incredibly stressful and uh, Sue has commented that, it, that it, it's, it's, she says, I'm amazed that our marriage survived this. <laughs> Hopefully she was speaking tongue-in-cheek. Um, but it was. It was a very stressful time. And then I've talked to Kendra about it uh, as well. And the Aplan family, they just came through and they said the same thing. They would spend all day. Uh, because you'd have to record them and record all the stuff. And then you had to upload it to Google drive and make sure it got to Christian in time so that he could put it up on Sunday morning. And sometimes it would go all night and we just took it by faith. We'd go to bed taking it by faith that by Sunday morning it would be uploaded in time to put out on, on, uh, at 10 o'clock on Sunday morning. And so it was incredibly stressful. But I have to admit, on Sunday mornings we got up later than usual and uh, it became our routine, our tradition that Sue would make scones and we would sit on the couch eating scones and drinking coffee and watching church. <laughs> and I have to admit, there are times I'm going, I could get used to this. <laughs> this is kind of nice. And um, so now we're, now we're back together. And now I'm thinking, okay, just why, why are we meeting together? I mean, we can, we're at a point where we can have church delivered to us in our living home, in our living rooms. And uh, yet we were called to, to meet together. And it's awful easy to sit back in your pajamas and drink coffee and eat scones and watch church. So why do we even do this? And it's not just Shepherd of the Valley. I mean, if you wanted to, you could stay home and listen to your favorite preachers all over the world, wherever they are. You can, you can listen to, you know, a big, big worship band if you want to. And listen, or if you're in the mood, you could listen to, you know, a pipe organ and a choir or you can listen to Kelly McRae, one of my favorites, a folk, you know, listen to some old folk hymns and things uh, if you wanted to. Why do this? Why are we gathered together? Well, let me first say that I think streaming is a good idea, okay? And I think we should probably start it up again. We were getting watchers and listeners, you know, all through the country. And I have to admit, it's, that's pretty heady, you know, to get people commenting from Colorado and other places like that. It's also very frightening, but uh, that, that's, that's kind of exciting. And we have to say there are lots of people who have serious health issues that cannot come and stay at home, and they can still be a part in that way. Or if you're traveling, you might want to tune in on Sunday mornings. I mean, there are reasons to do that. But at the same time, if we get into that habit, it also plays to our worst consumer tendencies, that we are used to saying that I sit back and I'm just going to consume. 
And the church is here to produce some religious goods and services and, and, and the congregations are the consumers, they're the customers, and of course here in America we know the customer is always right. That carries over for pastors and leaders too. I mean, we get the idea that we, get, we start to fall into that trap that yes, the customer is always right, and so we start to feel this idea that we've got to keep as many people happy as possible. And our idea is to try to keep everybody happy. And we, even though we know that's impossible, we're going to give it a go anyway. And we try to do that. The other thing it makes us do, it compels us to make these bold promises that uh, it's, it's difficult for anybody to sacrifice their time for anything today. And we're asking you to sacrifice this time on Sunday morning. And so what do pastors do? We make these bold promises, these great things that come Sunday morning and you will have an encounter with God. Come Sunday morning and your life will be changed forever. Come Sunday morning and you will find the answers to all of life's problems. Now, you can encounter God on Sunday mornings. And I believe with all my heart that the Bible contains the wisdom that answers life's most profound questions. And yes, hopefully the word of God and the worship and the music, you will leave changed a little bit when you leave Sunday morning. But promising that, saying that it will happen, is different than saying it could happen. And by promising and being bold and saying it will happen, that's using God for your own purposes. That's manipulation. That's paganism. That's not what we're here for. It could, but to say that it will is not our place to say. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the work of the Holy Spirit. That is the recognition that the Holy Spirit is working, that we're not manipulating God. So when we come together, when you talk about coming to church, what do you expect? What should you expect? What were you taught to expect? What was I taught to expect when coming to church? Well, a worship service is so much more than just delivering content to you. It's so much more than that. Uh, we have come to believe that worship is this external experience. This external experience that we have on Sunday morning. And the preacher or the musicians, they're the primary conduit to provide that, that experience with God. It's an external event. Well, Jesus talks to the Samaritan woman in that famous story where he meets the woman at the well. And uh, they begin to, and first of all, he talks about her and her need for thirst, her need for the living water. But then she kind of changes the subject and talks about worship. And the Jews and the, and the Samaritans did not get along, okay? The Jews looked down on the Samaritans. They looked down on them racially, ethnically, and religiously. They looked down on them. But one thing they did agree on was that to properly worship, you had to climb a mountain. And in Samaria, they had their mountain. And in Jerusalem, they had their mountain. And that is Old Covenant theology. Because when Moses led, led the people out of, the, out of Egypt, he did climb the mountain Sinai, given the Ten Commandments, and he came down with his face transformed, his, his face shining the glory of God. And then they built the temple on, the Mount, on Mount Zion in Jerusalem. So religion, so, so worship was always about climbing a mountain. It was an external thing. And Jesus says in this new world, this new covenant, this new creation, that's external. 
He says worship is internal. It is something that happens inside, not something we fabricate or do on the outside. The transformation that Moses experienced, his face was brilliant. It was real, but have you noticed it was also temporary? This is not temporary. This is an infilling of the Holy Spirit. He says we are now to worship as an inward posture of spirit and truth. And we come together to outwardly express that. We don't go to church. We don't go to church to find communion with God. We come to church to express the communion we already have outwardly. That's why we're here. We do it together to express communion outwardly. That's the New Testament theology. That this is this long time process and we come together to do this. In our language, in our Christian uh, evangelical language, we do kind of communicate sometimes that we have arrived. We talk about, oh, when I was saved back in 1972. Or I was filled with the Spirit at this revival meeting or whatever. And those, those experiences are real. But they give you the idea that I've been there and now this is just coming to church because I'm supposed to or because uh, I need to do something, I need to serve or whatever. But it's a lifelong process. We are continually being saved. We are continually being born again and again and again. I'm not saying we lose salvation and have to regain it and all that stuff. I'm just saying that it's renewal every day. And it is lifetime. None of us have arrived. We are all in the process. It is a transformation. I, I love the metaphor of the greenhouse. That the church is like a greenhouse. In other words, we make sure that we try to make sure that there's the, the atmosphere is correct for growth, that there is water and that there is sunshine and that there is light, but the Holy Spirit does the growing. We don't grow a plant. You can ask every orchardist that, that. God grows the plant, but we can create the atmosphere for water and sun so that growth is happening. That's what we're here for. We don't find communion of God by attending church. We come here to express our communion with God. We are people who have been living with God all week long, and we come on Sunday mornings to express that reality and maybe to encourage others who are maybe struggling with that reality. The preacher is not the conduit. The worship team is not the conduit. This is the work of the Holy Spirit. And I think that maybe, just maybe, if we expected more of the Holy Spirit during the week, Monday through Saturday, Sunday would take on a whole new meaning. So we come on Sunday morning after expecting the Holy Spirit to work in our lives Monday through Saturday, and we come to express that. So I've never believed more strongly in the potential of Sunday morning than I do right now. I never believed more strongly in the potential. It is true that we can pray alone. It's true that we can worship alone. We can confess alone. We can lament alone. We can even receive teaching now alone. We can even practice the sacraments alone. We can sing alone. But something extraordinary happens when we practice these things together. Something else happens in the community when we do it together. So why do we gather? Oh, I guess I ought to turn it on, huh, Christian? 
Why do we gather? Uh, I don't know if you recognize this actor, Alec Guinness. This is him as Colonel Nicholson in the Bridge on the River Kwai. I don't know if you've ever seen that movie. People my age have seen it. It's a great movie. Highly recommend it. You might recognize him as this, Prince Faisal, I think his name, in Lawrence of Arabia. Anybody know who he is? Anybody know who Alec Guinness is? How about this guy? <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, okay, that's Alec Guinness. <laughs> now we know who he is. He wrote an autobiography about his, his journey from atheism to faith in Christ. And he writes this, about this experience that he had. He says, uh, he says, I was walking up Kingsway in the middle of the afternoon when an impulse compelled me to start running. With joy in my heart and in a state of excitement, I ran until I reached the little church there which I had never entered. And I knelt, caught my breath, and for 10 minutes was lost to the world. And he says, in his typical understated British way, he says, it was a rather nonsensical gesture of love. And I thought about that, and I think that I cannot think of a better definition of worship than a nonsensical gesture of love. And that's what we do. That's one thing we do. We're going to talk about five things we do here. But we gather together to offer a nonsensical gesture of love. That's what it's here for. Uh, that means it's not pragmatic always. Sometimes we want to be pragmatic. We want to be, you know, pr uh, practical. But it's not always pragmatic. Uh, when we leave Sunday morning, you know, if you're thinking, did I receive enough this morning to, to, to make it worth my while to come to church? That's consumerism. That's consumerism. We are here to express the love. We're express, it's a nonsensical expression, gesture of love. C.S. Lewis wrote in, uh, in one of the Chronicles of Narnia, the, the magician's nephew, he says, witches are like that. They're not interested in things or people unless they can use them. They are terribly practical. That is not worship. To get something practical, to make my life go better, make my family turn out perfect, make my business go well, that's not, that's not worship. It is simply a nonsensical gesture of love. I don't know why, but when I bring home a little bundle of flowers wrapped in tissue paper, it is totally impractical, but it seems to make my wife happy. Happy. And if she's delighted, I'm delighted. Totally impractical. Totally impractical to cut flowers off of a plant that are going to die eventually and bring them to her. She loves them. But that's okay. It was not practical for God to include every beautiful tree in the garden so Adam and Eve could enjoy them. It was not just practical that Jesus turned water into wine at a wedding. It's not just practical that uh, he chose to adopt us and pour his love out on us. It was simply a nonsensical gesture of love. That's all it is. If we're looking for that to improve ourselves or if we're looking to do for church so that the institution of Shepherd of the Valley grows, then again, that's paganism. That's not Christianity. It's not transactional. It's not transactional either. Uh, it's not practical, but it's not transactional. It's not like if I give God something, I'll get something else. Another illustration from uh, about 10 years ago, I think it was, 
the Buffalo Bills were playing the Pittsburgh Steelers in a game, and it went into overtime. And there was a receiver who dropped a pass in the end zone, and the Buffalo Bills lost the game. And he's a Christian. Steve Johnson's a Christian. And he tweets this out after the game. He says, I praise you 24-7, and this is how you do me? You expect me to learn from this? How? I will never forget this, ever. And then he later backtracked and said, I was simply crying out and asking why. And we can sit back and say, oh, gosh, can I believe he said that out loud? I can't believe he tweeted that. But I don't know about you, but I have said the same things numerous times. I mean, most of you kind of know our story. We have prayed and prayed for more children. And by golly, we were missionaries. We were serving God. Why isn't he answering our prayer? It's like, all I do for you, you know? It is not transactional. It's nonsensical. It's nonsensical. It's not something that I got to keep my end of the bargain, so therefore I expect God to keep his end of the bargain. And when he doesn't, I get really mad. It's not that at all. Sky Jatani, I think I put this up on the board. Yeah, Sky Jatani, he says, we gather to worship for no more practical reason than to adore our creator and redeemer. And in the process, we discover something equally impractical, that he adores us as well. Not practical, not transactional. We also <clears throat> gather together to see through one another's eyes, to see things through other people's eyes because we can't see everything fully. If there's anybody that should give us, give us uh, consolation and encouragement about doubting, it should be John the Baptist. I mean, think about John the Baptist's credentials. His, his birth was foretold. He was told to be a prophet in strength and power. He, uh, he's the one who identified Jesus as the Son of God. He's the one who pointed to Jesus and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And he's the one who said, It's better that I decrease and he, in, he increase. So we think that this guy's got it all together, you know, and then he gets arrested. And he's in prison. He's in the dungeon. And he starts to doubt. And he sends his friends to ask Jesus, Are you the one or should I be waiting for someone else? If you're the one, then why am I in prison? He says, you know, he's thinking, you know, crowds followed me. Kings hated me. If you're the one, why am I about to die? Why? And what did Jesus say? He said, go back and tell him what you see. Go back and tell him what you see. That's all we ask. And they didn't go back, I'm sure they didn't go back and chastise John and say, you shouldn't doubt, you of little faith. They didn't go back and fill him full of Christian cliches. They went back and told him what they saw. And let me tell you, when we're in a dungeon, our sight is really limited. It's dark, it's evil, it's scary. And we don't need cliches. We don't need chastisement or condemnation. We need somebody to tell us a different story. Paint a different picture. Somebody who's seen God work and say, this is who he is. And sometimes it comes in conversation and I'm sitting here listening to this music this morning and saying, this is God telling me, this is a, there's a different story here. I can say, woe is me, and it looks dark, and maybe it looks scary, and 
and, but I can't see, but I need your eyes to show me. I need the people, if we're in the dungeon, I need people who have vision so I can see things through their eyes. And you ought to know that next week it might be you in the dungeon and you need to see through my eyes. We do it because we need to see through each other's eyes. It's vulnerable, it's fearful, but we need friends who will show us a different picture of God's goodness, of God's love. We gather for community, not for a concert. We attend sports events, we attend Broadway plays, we attend concerts, we attend you know, football games and all that. Those things are great and they're great entertainment. They're, they're meant to amuse us, but we are not spectators. We are not onlookers. We are participants. Biblically speaking, the church is a community. It is not an event. It is a group of people. We are an assembly of women and men and children who God has redeemed and who the Spirit fills. And we are here to manifest God's kingdom to the world of what it looks like. What does grace look like? We all know John, Jesus and Paul both agree with this. Jesus said that when two or more are gathered together, I will be on the platform preaching. No, he didn't say that. Of course not. He didn't say when two or more are gathered together, I'll be on the piano playing. No, he said when two or more are gathered, I am among you. We see Jesus in each other. We see it in the congregation. That's why we're here. When two or more are gathered, I am with you. It's very, very different. We gather to practice rhythm and rest, to set aside time to gaze, to contemplate, to get this cosmic perspective, to see life from God's perspective, to see things that, that we can offer the best music, the best sermon, but we're basically here to raise our sights. And when the music is good and when the sermon's okay and, and when the prayers are okay, they help us raise our sights, raise our eyes to see what God is doing and see it from His perspective. And it prepares us to re-enter our, our ordinary lives on Monday morning. And yeah, we recruit people to serve here. We have some staff people in our church, but basically we are a volunteer-run church. And we recruit people to serve. And there is work. But we also need time of silence, a time to slow down, a time to reflect, a time to meditate. This is not an either or kind of thing. God didn't redeem us just to put us to work. He put us to, he redeems us because he loves us, but there is work to do. There is a mission to, to, to carry out. It's not either or, it's mission and meditate. It's, it's rest and work. And yes, sometimes it's tedious and sometimes it's boring, but this is what we are called to do, that we come together for this rhythm to reflect and to look above and to get God's perspective. We gather to experience inexplicable beauty. I was asked recently, why can't church be beautiful? And I didn't have an answer. Why can't it be beautiful? It needs to be beautiful. Why can't church be beautiful? Beauty opens the windows of our souls and, and, and is able to, to communicate. Another millennial asked me, he says, you know, my generation, your generation used to ask, how come the church be relevant? 
He said, our church doesn't, our generation isn't asking, how can the church be relevant? It's asking, can the church be trusted? That's a deeper question. And I believe beauty creates trust. I believe that we can create beauty. This, is, this impractical, nonsensical beauty can create trust because it, it displays God's splendor and God's character. And that's what we're here for. You could say this beauty is, is not valueless. It's not just some extravagant thing. It reveals God's character of beauty, truth, and goodness. That we can value something that seems to be totally useless, maybe. And, and I got to thinking about this. Of course, every day I read the news, it has something about Ukraine. And war is just the opposite of that. War comes in, beauty creates, war destroys. Beauty has, has order, war creates chaos. And you see those pictures of Ukraine where the trains have come in, where the missiles have been launched at apartment complexes and hospitals, and it's just destruction. It is ugly. And beauty opens us up. It gives us a glimpse of God's character. It is a prelude, I believe, to justice. And Isaiah tells us that true worship, true worship declares justice, not injustice. That's how you tell the difference between truth and lie. That if we want, if we want society and the world to care about the orphan and the trafficked and the, and the poor and the hungry, and they want society to love even the useless people we think are useless people, regardless of how small or how old or, or value uh, what, whether they're different, we value anyone that we think may be useless, then we need to do that. And I think beauty opens the door to that. And I believe we need to cultivate beauty in the church. And so I'm making a call right now to all the people who do create beauty, to the poets, help us create worship that is beautiful to the writers, to the visual artists, the painters, the photographers, the flower arrangers, the great beauty in our worship service. It opens the soul. It opens the window of the soul. And you say, yeah, it's useless, but it's not. It's what gives meaning to life. Beauty is what reflects God's goodness. We are coming to do communion this morning together as we gather together. And John O'Donohue is an Irish priest who I, I absolutely love. And uh, he, saw, he talks about uh, that coming to church and gathering to church, he talks about it as the, the um, reverence of approach. That coming to church is a reverence of approach to God. And I think... I get some thinking about that, and we have lost the whole idea of reverence, I think, in our society. Reverence is no longer cool. Reverence is not hip. Irreverence is cool. Irreverence is, is, is hip. And you can watch any comedian on late-night TV and realize it's all irreverence. Now, I'm not a prude, all right? Um, there is a tool for irreverence and satire and when you want to uncover false gods and idols and things like that. I'm not a prude. I realized that when uh, we had our first dinner with some missionary colleagues when we first moved to, to, to Puebla and with this very conservative family from the Midwest 
And I obviously grew up using words that they did not. <laughs> and I did not even notice that until we got back home and Sue says, did you see that look on their face? <laughs> and I'm like, no, I, what did I say? I didn't, I didn't realize. But reverence is something we could recapture. It's, it's not in the mainstream anymore. It's not even in the mainstream of, of, of Christianity anymore. But this is something we can recapture. The idea that we are here to meet something and to praise something that is, that is beyond us, that is beyond our creation, beyond our control, that transcends our understanding, that bridges languages and cultures, that something that is beyond us, bigger than us, and I believe that once we get that idea of reverence for God, then we will have more reverence for God's creatures. That if we are irreverent with God, then we will be irreverent with each other. And I think that is so important. So we come to the table in awe. If it's something that transcends ourselves, it dwarfs ourselves in front of God. And in, and in front of another, we, we, we look at it with reverence. And so communion is, a, is, is bringing together a family, and it is a reverence of approach. And these symbols, these, symbols of, uh, these simple symbols of, of bread and cup, they are the boat that has carried Christianity through the centuries. And it is the boat that will carry Christianity into the future. It's not a sermon. It's not the style of music or the worship. These ancient symbols link us, link us to a truth that is far better than anything I could possibly explain or anything I could possibly try to understand in the scriptures. This is what links us. I have never more been believed stronger strongly in what happens on Sunday morning, especially with communion. We can do all those things by ourselves, but something profound happens when we practice them together, when we celebrate them together and remember who God is, remember who the Savior is, remember what he's done for us. Then we do that together, God is magnified. And so what we're going to be doing this morning is something that will is, is something that has carried us through the centuries and will carry us into the future after we're long gone. So we're going to celebrate communion together this morning. Um, I don't know about you, but, you know, you've probably gotten a lot of invitations to weddings. And, you know, you go, you think, do I really want to, do I really want to go to this wedding? Uh, it's far away. I don't really want to give up my Saturday afternoon to go to a wedding. Um, do I can't even afford a, a wedding gift maybe for them? I don't know whether I want to go or not. Well, I can honestly tell you that I have said that. Do I really want to go to this wedding? Do I really want to have to go to this wedding Sunday afternoon? I can honestly tell you that I have never, ever extended myself out and attended a wedding and never said, I wish I hadn't done that. I always wish, I'm always glad. I did that. I am always glad that I extended myself, made the effort, came, and listened to two people declare their love for each other. I've never regretted going to a wedding. I've never regretted doing a wedding. In fact, that's probably one of the main reasons I got back into the pastorate, because I like doing weddings. 
And that's what, I, that's what I feel like Jesus is offering, inviting us today, this morning. And I'm going to call and ask you to extend yourself and come to the table. Extend yourself, and I guarantee on Sunday mornings, you'll say, I'm glad I did that. I'm glad I sacrificed that time to extend myself and receive the bread and the cup.